Well, hello and welcome to Church Online again. My name's Brendan McLaughlin and uh, I'm the Senior Minister here at Irwood Anglican. Tim Keller tells a story, it's a true story, of a, a woman who lived in New York City by the name of Kitty Genovese. In 1964, uh, Kitty was sadly stabbed one night during a mugging. Now her screams for help led to a whole bunch of lights going on in the apartments above where she was at. Uh, and uh, it actually spooked the mugger into running off. Police reports say that 38 people looked down from their apartments that night due to the screams. But no one came to her rescue. No one got involved. The assailant, who was standing back for five minutes, then came back and found her in an alley that she'd crawled into stole $49 and killed her. Now this is one of the charges that is actually commonly brought against God. You see, some people view God as sitting up in his luxury apartment, uh, looking down at our suffering and refusing to do anything about it, refusing to get involved. The passage that was just read for us though today, Hebrews 2, says this is actually a false charge. Now this is the second sermon in our series to the letter of the Hebrews. The letter of the Hebrews was written to uh, Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, who were experiencing all manner of persecutions and pressures. Uh, now the majority of this pressure was coming from their fellow countrymen, fellow Jews, who were telling them to come back to Judaism. And so the author spends 10 chapters outlining all the ways in which Jesus is superior to Judaism, all right? So if you wanted to come up with a working title for our series on Hebrews 1 to 10, a good option would be the supreme glory of Jesus. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, that we looked at last week saw the author beginning to outline this supreme glory of Jesus uh, by telling us that God has spoken to us through Jesus, through the Son. Yet in case some people then equate Jesus with an angel because, well, God used to speak to us through, through angels, uh, the, the, the author spends almost the entire of chapter 1 saying, no, 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 Jesus is not an angel, he is superior to angels. The problem is, Jesus doesn't look superior to angels. You see, angels are majestic warriors, flames of fire, 1 verse 7. Uh, Jesus is not a warrior. He was a human who was executed on the cross. And so the question our passage uh, today is answering is, if Jesus is so superior to angels, why doesn't he look superior? And the answer is that unlike those people who refused to get involved with Kitty Genovese, Jesus got involved with his people. Unlike those people who refused to make them vulnerable for Kitty Genovese, God the Son made himself vulnerable for his people. Right? So the whole point of Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 18 is to show why Jesus looks lower than the angels. Now this is quite a complex passage. Uh, it really needs two or three sermons. But, and so does every chapter of Hebrews. And so that we're not here until the following Christmas, uh, we're going to try and unpack this passage in four points, which will hopefully come up on your screen. So we're going to begin by looking at what Jesus got involved in. 
So I've titled our first point, uh, Our Predicament, that's verses 5 to 8. We're then going to see why Jesus became so vulnerable by taking on humanity, uh, which is uh, to become our brother, firstly, in verses 9 to 13, but then to become our captain in verses 14 to 18. We're then going to conclude by seeing what we're supposed to do about all this, uh, which is to make Jesus our king, and that's point four. But our goal for today, it's the same as our goal for last week, okay? Uh, the author wants to show us how amazing Jesus is by becoming a little lower than the angels for a time, uh, and then to tell us what we should do in response. So let's dive in and look at our predicament, our brother, our captain, and our king. And our passage begins, uh, Hebrews 2 verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. Now, sadly, uh, the NIV has decided to leave out a very important word at the beginning of verse 5, and that is the word for. So verse 5 should read, for it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. So verse 5 is an explanation... Right, hence the four for what the author has just said. And if you recall from last week, the author said in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that we need to pay the most careful attention, all right, we should be obsessed with what he's just talked about, with, with Jesus, uh, verse 1, so that we do not drift away from our very great salvation, 2, verse 3. Now, why is that? Verse 5, for it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. You see, angels are not going to have authority in heaven. All right, that's the world to come. So who is? Well, it's at this point that the author quotes, uh, in verse 6, he quotes someone. <laughs> uh, it's actually um, Psalm 6, and uh, sorry, Psalm 8, Psalm 8. And he says this in verse 6. But what is mankind that you are mindful of them, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. So what the author is doing here is using Psalm 8 to marvel at the fact that even though humans are less powerful than angels, less capable, less glorious than angels, God has put us humans in charge of this world. All right, in Genesis 1.28, humans are told to rule the earth and subdue it. Then in Genesis 2.15, we're told what this, what, what this looks like. It means taking care of this world. All right? So that includes things like caring for the environment, uh, administering justice, caring for the oppressed, and seeking peace and prosperity for all. all right? How amazing, the author says, that God has subjected this world given this world to humans. Such a noble task crowns us with glory and honour, verse 7. But it doesn't currently look this way. Have a look at verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. You see, in Genesis 3, our original parents decided that they wanted to rule their way, not God's. And we've been doing the exact same thing ever since. And as it turns out, we can't actually manage this very well by ourselves. All right? We are not currently subduing this world, are we? 
It's subduing us. Right? We're not achieving peace and prosperity. We're breeding violence and discord. We're not caring for the oppressed. We're caring for ourselves. And we're not in control of nature either. Droughts, tsunamis, not to mention COVID, is showing us that nature is in control of us. Right? And this is our predicament as humans. We are not the rulers God intended us to be. We are instead at the mercy of nature, at the mercy of sinful society, and at the mercy of our own sinful hearts. Right? What is to come of this predicament? Well, it's at this point that the author inserts another but, one T, and it is a beautiful but. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what the author is doing here is he's circling back again to Psalm 8, but this time he's reading it through Jesus. And he says, Jesus became a little lower than the angels in the incarnation uh, when he became human. Now, he's no longer lower than the angels. Uh, he's now crowned with glory and honour because he tasted death for everyone. And the author's point is this. You see, while Psalm 8 is not true of us at the moment, it is true of Jesus. However, it can be true of us in the world to come. That's verse 5. Okay? If and only if we're aligned with Jesus. All right? If God hasn't subjected the world to come to angels, verse 5, who has he subjected it to? He subjected it to his sons and daughters. We see this in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Now, we're going to see how Jesus brings these sons and daughters to glory in our third point. Uh, but just sit for a moment with the fact that in order to become our, our captain, right, point three, Jesus first needed to become our brother. We see it in verse 11. Uh, but the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. See, what this means is Jesus looked down from his luxury apartment. Jesus looked down from heaven and he said, look, my people are in a horrible predicament. Due solely to their disobedience. So I'm going to go down and help. I'm going to get involved. But here's the thing, our predicament is so hopeless, we as humans are so hopeless that simply lending a hand was not enough. You see, we're like, we're like newborn babies when it comes to obeying God. We are completely helpless in trying to obey God ourselves. We need it done all for us. And this is what verse 10 is getting at. Read it with me. In bringing in many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for, and, uh, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, a little confusing there. What does this mean uh, for Jesus to be made perfect? 
doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful before the cross. Well, no, it can't mean that. The rest of Scripture tells us that's not the case. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 actually gives us a little help. It's just one quick verse. Let me read it for you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, again, a little confusing. It doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient before the cross. What it means is Jesus' obedience had never been tested. See, the cross shows that even in the face of infinite suffering, Jesus obeyed the Father's will. So when it says the author, when the author says uh, Jesus was made perfect, he means Jesus now has tested obedience. And what that means is he has succeeded where we have failed. But in order to succeed for us, he had to become like us. He needed to be tested as a human, not as an internal divine creature. Oh, sorry, being. Now, do you know what this means for Jesus to become human? Uh, in the movie District 9, uh, it's about a mal uh, we see this malnourished race of aliens uh, land on earth uh, seeking help and seeking asylum. Now they're derogatorily called prawns because they look like giant walking prawns and most of humanity are quite disgusted by them. But uh, the main human character, he's a guy by the name of Wickus, he accidentally gets sprayed in the face with some alien fluid and that slowly transforms him into a prawn. One of these alien prawns. And it is quite disgusting to see happen. But friends, do you understand that Jesus willingly, not accidentally, he willingly became a human? Have you ever stopped to think about what it means for an eternal being to have to go to the toilets? Right? That's how much Jesus loves us. He knew that to get involved in our predicament meant becoming our brother so that he could obey on our behalf, so that he could succeed where we have failed. And friends, if you are in Christ, okay, if you call yourself a brother or sister of Christ, verse 12 says he sings your praises. What this means is it doesn't matter what people think of us doesn't matter what your parents think of you. doesn't matter what your colleagues think of you or your friends or your neighbours. doesn't even matter what social media thinks of you. For we have a brother who is proud of us, who sings our praises, who is proud to call us brothers and sisters. But not only is Jesus our brother, he's also our captain. In verse 10, <clears throat> Jesus is called the author of salvation. Now, that word author, it's a hard one to, to, uh, to translate. The most literal translation is something like leader or pioneer. So it's one of those two. Uh, it's someone who leads the way so that others can follow. So the best, uh, the best description I've heard is it's like a ship 
being smashed against the rocks, right? And it's about to break apart and everyone might, is going to be in danger. And so what the captain does is he ties a rope around himself and he jumps in to try and swim to the shore. And when he gets to the shore, he ties that end of the rope off so that the rest of the crew can safely make it to land using the rope. Right? He, is, he is a captain who takes the lead, uh, a pioneer who leads the way. And in verses 14 and 15, the author describes our ship as humans. Have a read with me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So our, our ship, if you will, is being, uh, the, the thing that we are being smashed to pieces by is the fear of death. Now why is this the case? Well, it's because death continues to win 100% of the time. Right? All of us are going to die one day. And no rational man or woman can face death without an uneasy apprehension. Right? People like to kid themselves at funerals that the deceased have gone to a better place. But if we are honest, we know that's not actually the case. Right? Hebrews 9.27 says it most clearly. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The reason every human fears death is because we know deep down there is a God out there. And we know deep down that we have not lived up to his standards. Right? Even atheists know this, in my opinion. That's why they're so militant that there is no God. They desperately don't want there to be a God. Because they know they will have to face judgment at death. But the author says that Jesus has freed Christians from this fear. Now, how is this? Uh, Dick Lucas, the famous English preacher, I think, puts it best. He says uh, that when, uh, let's just say, John Smith dies, he goes straight to stand before the cosmic judge, God the Father. And at that point, the devil steps forward, wheeling in a huge trolley full of files. And according to Revelation 12, verse 10, the devil begins to accuse John Smith of all the sins he's ever committed in his life. All right? he, he grabs volume one that speaks of all manner of lies and cheating and, and greed and lust, and it's all true. Okay? Revelation 12, 10 is the only time in all of Scripture that the devil is not lying. And it's because he doesn't need to. Right? Due to our sin, Satan holds the power of death. Verse 14. However, John Smith is a brother of Jesus. And before the devil can even open up his first file on John Smith, Jesus steps forward. And he says to the cosmic judge, to God the Father, you cannot punish John for these crimes, Father. For I have taken his place. All right? The rope that Jesus tied around himself to carry to shore for us is outlined in verse 17. Have a read. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement 
for the sins of the people. Now the word atonement there is more accurately translated propitiation, as the ESV says. And the word propitiation means to turn away wrath. All right, Jesus' death has made satisfaction for the sins the accuser presents. And this is why Jesus became human. Why he became a little lower than the angels. He had to take on humanity to succeed where we failed, all right, to live a truly obedient life as our brother, but also to take the punishment we deserve, to propitiate God's wrath as our captain. So the final question is, how do we respond to this? There's a, a character in the Lord of the Rings called Boromir. Now, Boromir's father was the steward of Gondor. Now, a steward is the person who rules when there's no king. Uh, but Boromir meets Aragorn, who is the true heir to the throne of Gondor. I don't think he's ever stepped foot in Gondor. He's been in uh, you know, exile or exclusion, uh, but he is the true heir to the throne. And Boromir is conflicted about this uh, because, look, he thought he would inherit the ruling of, of Gondor, right, and, and serve the people there because he loves Gondor. And who is this Aragorn? He's never even stepped foot in, 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 uh, in Gondor for all I know. Does he even love our people? But at the end, he realises that Aragorn does love Gondor and will do anything in his power to protect and care for Gondor. And as he lays dying in Aragorn's arms, Boromir's last words are this. He says to Aragorn, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Friends, when we see the extent to which Jesus went to, to take on humanity as our brother and to lead the way through death as our captain, the only appropriate response is to follow him as our king. And what did Jesus do as king, according to this passage? When he heard our cries for help, he didn't just call it in and then uh, forget about it. He came down to help in person. Right? He made himself vulnerable in order to help in person. And this is what he wants of his brothers and sisters too. Now this is hard because our culture values individual freedom very highly. And whether we like it or not, Western Christians have been slowly cooked in this broth of individualism. So our natural tendency is not to get involved because it could encroach on my freedoms. Right? Take church, for example. The general rule across most churches is what's called the 80-20 rule. What it means is 80% of the ministry and work done at a church is generally done by 20% of the people. Now, why is it that so many people in churches do so little? It's because becoming more involved in ministry takes more of our time. Right? Signing up for parish council or for lawn mowing or for music ministry or for cleaning or for morning tea, that, that makes us vulnerable. 
because it encroaches on our free time. Yeah, that's what Jesus did for us. He became vulnerable by serving us with his time. Or how about money? Why is it that most Christians come nowhere near to tithing the way that the Bible calls us to? It's because giving away 10% of our weekly income to church, not to mention charity on top of that, makes us vulnerable. It's so much safer to keep all that money for ourselves. Yet that's what Jesus did for us. He gave away all his riches to be vulnerable for us. Or how about friendship? Uh, let me tell you, Western civilization is pretty terrible when it comes to friendship. Why? Because if I befriend that, 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 that difficult person at church or that, that strange person two doors down, it might be really draining. Right? I don't think I'm going to get very much out of that friendship, but they might ask for a whole bunch from me. It will make me vulnerable. Yet that's what Jesus did for us. He became vulnerable by being utterly drained for us. Now friends, you may be able to charge the gods of other religions with doing nothing when it comes to our suffering. But you cannot charge the God of the Bible for that. Right? The God of the Bible came down from heaven. He made himself vulnerable to live the perfect life we could not live as our brother and to turn away God's wrath that we could not handle as our captain. So what do you do with a God this amazing? Well, we echo Boromir and say, I will follow you, my brother, my captain, my king.